According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Proverbs this morning, Proverbs chapter 10. You may join me there as we get started. Proverbs chapter 10. We spent quite a bit of time in verse 1 just doing the introductory material that uh, helps us to transition from chapter 9 into chapter 10. It's a huge hinge here. In fact, chapter 10, verse 1 has a brand new section heading, the Proverbs of Solomon. And it demonstrates that this portion of the book, chapters 10 through 24, forms a separate section than what we were dealing with in chapters 1 through 9. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Take this moment of silent prayer to humble your heart under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have this morning to assemble together. We thank you for Fallon's safe return. We rejoice, Father, over the fruitfulness of uh, the time that was spent there. And for those that came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, it is it is for your uh, good pleasure, Father, and the glory of your Son. And we just rejoice that you got her there, brought her back, and all these things, Father, are uh, testimonies to your faithfulness. Father, we call upon your faithfulness now this hour to set aside distractions, to open the eyes of our understanding. Bless our study in your truth, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we uh, are working our way through the, uh, the outline here, and let me just bring us up to speed. Uh, I like to take the first point of every outline to kind of establish the context for the chapter, and so I do so here as well. The Proverbs of Solomon in uh, Proverbs 10.1 forms a subheading within the overall collection, and we will have additional subheadings in uh, chapter 25, chapter 30, and chapter 31. And so uh, those are markers within the text itself that help us to outline the, uh, the book and understand the structure of the overall message. It is a significant adjustment uh, the emphasis, tone, and structure is quite different in chapters 10 through 24 compared to 1 through 9. It's more personal, it's more uh, parental in those early chapters, why I call it parental wisdom in uh, those first nine chapters. Also, there's no discernible order or progression. Very rarely do we find any links from verse to verse. And although today we'll have an exception to that general rule, we'll find a pattern in, in about a five-verse stretch, and that's really unusual in, in chapters 10 through 24. But we do have short, pithy statements of truth presented in no discernible order or progression. The second point, chapter 10 clearly contrasts the righteous with the wicked, and we have the, uh, the uh, emphasis here between Sadiq and Rasha. We have the 12 uses in this chapter, and we're going to see that's going to be a pattern uh, throughout uh, these chapters, in particular chapters 10 through 18. We'll see those uh, issues here this morning as well. Uh, in verse 6, blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. And that's just one example whereby we have that contrast again and again and again a dozen times in this, uh, in this one chapter alone. In fact, it jumps out at you when you view the, uh, the diagram there by chapter. You get to chapter 10 and the, the usage just is off the charts compared to uh, chapters 1 through 9. Skip down through some of these things. We get to Proverbs 10.1. Proverbs 10.1 forms a great threshold between parental wisdom and personal public wisdom. The threshold here, and we discussed this, the nature of what happens when a young man leaves his parents' house, when a young man is no longer under that umbrella of father and mother, when he has to stand before the Lord, either living in wisdom or defying wisdom, either walking in the Lord's blessings or reaping the consequences of being the fool as uh, Proverbs describes it. And there really is no middle ground. You're either wise or you're a fool. You're either using the Word of God or you're, you're pursuing your own lusts and the issues there. All right. Um, talking about what is the real issue in posterity prosperity. That was point four. Posterity prosperity, being really wealthy, is uh, not, the, uh, not the funds that you're accumulating in the bank, but the heritage that you're leaving to your children and your grandchildren your posterity. And that, again, is the dichotomy of wisdom versus foolishness. Don't uh, confuse earthly money with heavenly money, of course. 
because it's the eternal profit and loss statement that's the only one that matters. (laughs) You recall that. As we looked at it in verse 2, ill-gotten gains do not profit. Proverbs 10.2, ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. And this is a nonsensical verse if all we do is look at it in temporal terms. If all we do is look at it in, in worldly terms, well then how can profit not profit? After all, it's gain, after all. How can a gain not profit? Well, it's an ill-gotten gain. And when we contrast earthly wealth with heavenly wealth, that which is eternal, clearly, is uh, represented there in that statement, righteousness delivers from death. So Proverbs 10.2, Proverbs 11.4, many other scriptures that help us to distinguish between the earthly and the eternal. Last week we were dealing with uh, legitimate appetites and illegitimate appetites. This was point six in the outline. Uh, The principle that draws from verse three here, the Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger, but he will reject the craving of the wicked. And and here too, we find in the poetry of these verses, we find a couple of things that are being dealt with. Uh, We have the uh, contrast between righteous and wicked, but we also have Different terms for hunger versus craving, all right? Different Hebrew expressions that relate to a legitimate hunger. God knows we have these appetites, and they're legitimate. We need food, all right? We have other appetites, but the cravings, the illegitimate appetites that are either excessive in terms of gluttony, or they are misdirected, all right? And of course, sexual appetites, likewise. Uh, You can have too much, or you can have it directed towards the wrong uh, object and other aspects there. Legitimate appetites, they're designed by God and they are provided for. He knows you what you need and He meets your need before you've even asked. The illegitimate cravings, they are not designed by God and they are not provided for. Uh, we have that indicated here in Proverbs 10.3, but it comes back again and again and again. Proverbs 11.6, Proverbs 13.25, Isaiah, Micah, and Philippians. All right, so those are the uh, verses we've seen up till now. We ran out of time last week as we moved on to point seven, and we're looking at verses four and five. We want to have this contrast, so point seven, just as righteousness versus wickedness is the manifest contrast in God's revealed realm of wisdom, we have diligence versus negligence. This now becomes our topic for today. Diligence versus negligence is the manifest contrast in God's design realm of work. God's design realm of work. Remember, work is not bad. (laughs) Work work preceded the fall. God gave work to sinless Adam and Eve before the fall, before sin. We don't view work as a bad thing uh, just because the fall has impacted certain things, right? Uh, The fall has turned work into toil. Uh, just as it's turned uh, childbirth into labor, uh, different aspects there, consequences for Adam, consequences for Eve in the process of, of uh, Genesis chapter 3. But work itself preceded the fall. Work is good. Work was designed by God. And in God's designed realm of work, the contrast here in, in wisdom or non-wisdom is the contrast of diligence versus negligence. And it really comes down to that. Again, just like with wickedness and righteousness, if we're trying to find a fuzzy middle, if we're trying to find a more nuance to it, uh, we need to search another book besides Proverbs, okay? Because Proverbs is not giving us a fuzzy middle or giving us a nuance. Proverbs is giving us a black and white, an either or, a clear distinction between diligence and negligence. So, verse 4 and verse 5, poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. And so there we have it. And we have what we've been studying in in all these chapters. We have the general rule of, of wisdom presenting how the world normally works under typical circumstances. Are there exceptions? Of course. And will there be ever a time that a a, uh, a, a diligent worker is going to struggle? Is there going to be a time when you know, a, a man's working hard, he's working diligently, and then just some, some circumstance comes up or he doesn't catch a good break and, and he has a, a, a season of difficulty? Of course. But as a general rule, hard-working people make more money and slugs make, make less. <laughs> All right? It's uh, pretty straightforward from there. So we have negligence versus uh, diligence. Diligence. 
The concept will come back again in chapter 12 and chapter 19. Let me just grab these. Proverbs 12, verses 24 and 27. Verses 24 and 27. Uh, The hand of the diligent will rule, but the slack hand will be put to forced labor. You know, the hard worker on the one hand and the less hard worker on the other hand. And, in, you know, a lot of times you realize it's, it's pretty simple to, to be a worker, to punch a clock and show up and go home and so forth. But when you're the, the owner of the business and when you're putting in 60 hours, 70 hours, 80 hours, when, uh, when you're the one that's uh, uh, actually uh, on the hook for the risk that's been taken and the capital that's been invested, uh, it's, it's quite a bit different, isn't it? And uh, the business owner, uh, the entrepreneur, the one that's self-employed, ends up putting in tons of hours and tons of effort as opposed to um, just simply the, the hired man that's putting in the hours and drawing the paycheck. See, there's a contrast to be found there. That's verse 24. Verse 27, a lazy man does not roast his prey, but the precious possession of a man is diligence. Another contrast between lazy and diligence. Chapter 19 and verse 15. We'll hit this again. Laziness casts into a deep sleep, and an idle man will suffer hunger. And then pay, uh, just kind of keep your eye out for that as well. You're going to notice the hunger motivation. We discussed this uh, when we were talking about legitimate appetites versus illegitimate cravings, right? That legitimate appetites are a good thing that God was very wise to create us uh, to, to grow hungry. Hungry can be a powerful motivation, right? If a man will not work, neither let him eat. Hunger is a, is a marvelous motivation for, uh, for hard work. And when you realize, you know, the clock doesn't stop, the calendar doesn't stop, uh, tomorrow's another day, next week's another week, um, got to keep working, got put, to put food on the table. And uh, the issue's there. Now under this, we have different... Uh, principles. Subpoint A, understand God is not uh, negligent. (laughs) So if we're imitators of God, if we have the same attitude God has, then we shouldn't be negligent. God is not negligent. We ought to image Him in His diligence. Remember, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. Our prime responsibility is to image God. We ought to represent Him within this creation. And uh, insofar as we don't do that, then we're falling short of, of that glory. We're falling short of our role. I think it's, uh, uh, it's setting ourselves up then for the consequences of diminishing the glory of Jesus Christ by not imitating God and His diligence. Uh, it's, to me, it's tragic if in your, your workplace, you know, had 20 officers on the sheriff's department shift, the last crew I worked on, and uh, you, know, you wanted to be the hardest working guy there. You don't, want, uh, you don't want the biggest slugs on, on shift to be the, the Christians. What a, what a testimony is that? You want the hardest workers to be, to be the Christians in your uh, department, in your workplace. God is not negligent. Habakkuk 2.3 and 2 Peter 3.9. Are you familiar with those? It's interesting to view. Let's, let's grab these. Habakkuk 2.3. It's interesting because sometimes um, he'll be accused of being negligent. He'll be accused of being slow. The, uh, the carnally-minded unbeliever uh, wants to accuse God of not knowing what he's doing, about being too slow. All right, extra credit if you can find Habakkuk this morning. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2.3. What's fun about this is it comes right in front of verse 4, <laughs> which we all know Habakkuk 2.4 because it's quoted in the New Testament so many times. Uh, we may not know that it comes from Habakkuk 2.4, but it does. Um, here's uh, Habakkuk in chapter 2. I will stand on my guard post. Here's verse 1 of chapter 2. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Do we do that? Are we diligent in our prayers? Are we patient in our prayers? Understand the the rampart, the, the alertness here. This is a picture of our prayer life. And are we patient enough to wait for that answer when it comes? Or, and are we humble enough to receive it when it does come and when it's a reproof, when it's a rebuke? The Lord answered me and said, Record the vision, inscribe it on tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time, 
See, God's smarter than we are and He's not going to answer too soon. The answer comes at the appropriate time, at the appointed time. All right? And then we're not the ones that make that appointment. He is. The appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. To us, it doesn't seem like it's hastening because we're temporal creatures. We're the little kids in the back seat saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And our parents that have the better perspective for time than the child does, uh, you know, has to very patiently put up with that. Now think of that. God, to him, a, a year is, you know, a thousand years are like a day. A day is like a thousand years. His plan is unfolding in his timetable, not ours. It hastens toward the goal. It will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. And this is the thing. The statement in Second Peter 3 is some people think that God is slow. God's not slow, as some count slowness. He's patient towards you, not desiring for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so this is the principle here. God is diligent. And sometimes diligence requires very tedious, very patient delays, very tedious, very patient um, waiting for other circumstances to fall into place first. And I think it's interesting that verse 3 then leads us directly into verse 4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. And I think the issues here on pride is not being willing to accept God's timetable, not waiting for his answer, growing dissatisfied with what God's doing and how long it's taken him to do it. <laughs> okay? And we just get all full of ourselves thinking that our plan's better than his plan. No, God's not negligent. God's not negligent. But how many times do we accuse him of negligence? We get tired of waiting, we say, all right, and we just take matters in our own hands and say, fine, I'll do it myself. (laughs) And every time we take matters in our own hands and say, I'll do it myself, we're accusing God of being negligent. He's not negligent. We ought to image him in his diligence. All right, now, as uh, an example here, we've already looked at Proverbs 10.4. We already saw Proverbs 12, verses 24 and 27. That was on the previous point, the main point seven. We did not see Proverbs 13, 4, so let's look at that. Proverbs 13, 4. As imitators of God, we should imitate diligence. Proverbs 13, 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. You know, this is an expression of satisfaction. God himself is satisfied. Why is he satisfied? Because he's diligent. You may have noticed that when you're pursuing carnality, when you're pursuing your own interests, and you're pursuing things other than what the Lord does, uh, or you know, friends of yours, neighbors that that are pursuing everything this world has to offer. Does that ever satisfy them? They can chase it and chase it and chase it and chase it, but where's the real satisfaction come from? Proverbs twenty-one five. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. How about some New Testament principles? Romans 12, 11. Some New Testament principles that apply to this as well. God is diligent. We should imitate Him in His diligence. Romans 12, 11. Romans 12 is such a a powerful chapter showing believers how to operate together in a local assembly. Showing us how, yes, we're individuals, we're members of a body, we ought to fit together as members of a body fit together, and the purpose is to serve one another. And that's what we're looking at here in the use of our gifts and the use of our ministries. And so, um, even before we get to verse 11, verse 9 says, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. So you see how this is working? This is a congregation. This is a flock of believers. This is the the body of Christ and serving one another. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. All right? And all of this falls under that heading of let love be without hypocrisy. What is love but a description of God himself, right? God is love. 
We are imitators of God in our diligence. God himself is diligent. As we serve one another, we are painting that picture. We're demonstrating the the very nature of God himself. Again, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. That is so huge. Don't, Don't lose sight of the fact when you're blessing another believer, when you're serving your sisters, your brothers, your pastor, all right? Don't, don't uh, do that service for the basis of what the pastor has earned or deserved or what the brother or the sister has earned or deserved. Don't look at that brother and say, well, what has he done for me lately or does he deserve this? No, you're serving the Lord. When you're serving the Lord, it motivates a great diligence, does it not? If you're serving man, then you might be tempted to kind of ease up a bit. But you're not serving man, you're serving the Lord. And that should motivate diligence. Colossians 3, verses 22 and 23. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Another uh, passage that I think is useful in the workplace. It's good to take with you to uh, your your next day at work. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for man. <laughs> I used to work my sergeant used to be a, uh, a lesbian feminist um, man-hater. And, and she made no secret of the fact. I mean, she was right flat out on, on why she disliked men and why she disliked Christians and why she disliked uh, any number of things. I think I fell under four categories of things she disliked. And, and yet she was my boss. She was my supervisor. And uh, how, do you, how do you work for, for someone that hates you like that? Well, this verse here. You say, that's, that's, I'm going I'm to go to work like that's Jesus Christ. I'm going to serve like that's Jesus Christ. And every unjust thing they tell me to do, I'll say, you know, yes, sir, and, or yes, ma'am, or, or you know, yes, I'm going to do this. And I'm doing it for Jesus Christ because this is where he has me. So um, I can even back up to verse 22. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. You know, being a hypocrite, putting on a show, acting like you're working, but, you know, as soon as the back is turned, you, you slough off again. No, not external service. Knowing that from, uh, whatever you do, do your work heartily is for the Lord rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. All right, are we going to imitate God? Are we going to imitate His diligence? Are we going to be diligent? Do we understand our priorities? And why do we do the things that we do? So much, uh, I think, is, is what the Scripture addresses in these regards. Not only, see, when I talk to un- uh, unbelievers, I talk to folks who don't know what church is or don't know what the Bible is or whatever, talk to different folks, they think that we all just show up to get our marching orders, to get a whole list of do's and don'ts, to, to be beat up about how terrible we are and whatever, to try to whip us into being better people. And I just, it just it's heartbreaking to me, because like if, if you only knew what church really is, if you only knew what the Christian life really is, how simple it is, and how beautiful it is, that, uh, that we, we, we're, we're being molded into the image of Christ. And there's this list of do's and don'ts and whatever, the have-tos and whatever, they become the want-tos when you understand what the thinking is and the priority is and the, and the beauty of what it is to be, to be transformed this way. Anyway, it's, it's serving the Lord rather than serving man. Finally, then, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. I was talking to somebody the other night, and they were saying they, they try to be a better person every day, better than they were yesterday. They want to be a better person today than they were yesterday. I just thought, well, <laughs> depending on what you're doing to go about that, that can be exhausting. <laughs> you can get really tired really quickly. If it's all about self-improvement and you want to be a better person, I don't, I don't want to mock that, but let's, let's orient how you're, how you're going about that, okay? Because if you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind, if you're living in the Word of God and it's shaping you, then praise God, that's, that's what it's supposed to do. You're still not a better person. Christ is still the better person. <laughs> but you're being molded into His image. That's the thing. We're, we're predestined to be conformed to His image. All right, 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 11. And uh, 
hard to pick up just in verse 5 since there's an introduction that leads us to this. But I love the fact that in verse 3, it's His divine power that has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That's why I fully defend the sufficiency of Scripture. I don't need to add human wisdom to the Word of God. I don't need to add secular humanism, especially secular humanism that stands opposed to the Word of God. I don't want to mix it with the Word of God and say, well, I need both in order for my life and godliness. I don't. Scripture itself is sufficient. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. This verse here demands that it's the Word of God that is the sufficient provision in His power for life and godliness. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. All right, and that, this is the passage that founds my philosophy for um, counseling, my philosophy for uh, secular uh, psychology and all the rest of that. Now for this very reason also, verse 5, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control. You know, this sounds like a lot of work, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, I want something easy. Well, that's not biblical Christianity. That's not the scriptures. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. You see how much work this is? And how it builds? And how you step by step, line by line, order on order, precept on precept? It takes a lot of work. It requires diligence. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, <laughs> you don't reach to a point where you say, all right, I'm, that's good enough. All right? I have these qualities. I'm, I'm happy. Okay? That is, all that is, is is your carnality speaking, your laziness speaking, saying, well, that's good enough. I'm happy the way I am. Uh, no. They must be yours and must be increasing. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? This, uh, I tried to adapt this verse. <laughs> I think this is a nice answer to how are you? That dreaded question when people ask, how are you? Right? And they don't really want to know. They're just waiting for you to say fine so they can move on to the real topic of discussion. But here's a good answer for how are you? I am neither useless nor unfruitful. <laughs> How about that? Neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what Scripture calls for us to be. Neither useless nor unfruitful. In fact, wouldn't that be something? Put that on my tombstone, right? Make that an epitaph. You know, now, Pastor Bob, neither useless nor unfruitful. And just let it go. People will walk through the cemetery years later and be reminded of Scripture. All right. God is not negligent, so we ought to Im- image Him in His diligence. Also, here's a second sub-point I think we should pay attention to. Back to Proverbs 10, verse 4. Being poor is not contrasted with being rich. Being poor is contrasted with making rich. Did you notice that? Proverbs 10, 4, and I think we've got a great parallel in 2 Corinthians six ten. It's not those who are being poor and those who are being rich. It's those who are being poor and those who are making rich. Look carefully and notice Proverbs 10.4. Let me get back to that. Proverbs 10.4. Lost my place. There we are. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand. So that's being. Poor is. Being poor. But the hand of the diligent doesn't say is rich, makes rich. Makes rich. The hand makes rich. And what's emphasized here is the production, the making, the increase, and the blessing that it is to increase, the design that it is to increase. This is, uh, I think, connected very well with 2 Corinthians 6.10 and the example of our Savior. 
the example of us, as what we are designed to produce. As poor, though making many rich. You remember that? A description of our Savior. And even um, what we're called to do here. Commending ourselves as servants of God. Man, this is a long passage too. In uh, purity and knowledge, in the word of truth, in, uh, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. All right, Second Corinthians 6, uh, verse 8. By glory and dishonor. How can we have both? By glory and dishonor. Well, it's a glory for those that understand the word of God is dishonor for the unbelievers of this world that think we're wasting our time. By evil report and good report. You can have both simultaneously. You're faithful to the text of the Word of God. And some will call you a hater. Some will say, no, you're faithful. Evil report and good report. Regarded as deceivers yet true. You preach, uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and you're called a liar. Somebody else comes along and says, oh no, 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 no. Science has told us that that didn't happen. Okay? As unknown yet well-known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death. You see every one of these contradictions? It's a contrast with how the world looks at it with how we know the reality is. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich. What a principle. And that's what, that's what we're dealing with in Proverbs 10, 4. Making many rich. It's not about what we have. It's not about how rich we are. It's about using the resources God has blessed us with for the purpose for which He's blessed us. To be able to be rich in good works and ready to share. To be able to serve one another in the Lord. To lay up that firm foundation of treasure in heaven that we saw a couple weeks ago in 1 Timothy chapter 6. The contrast is... Being poor on the one hand versus making rich on the other hand. And what it is our diligence is able to produce. What is the increase our our, uh, diligence is producing? That's the contrast. And we're here uh, not to lay up as much treasure as we can. It's not he who dies with the most toys wins. (laughs) All right. But it's being diligent and blessing others. Being diligent and blessing others. All right. If you need more on that, I recommend uh, what we did under point five with that eternal profit and loss statement, paying attention to First Timothy six verses seventeen through nineteen. All right, and understand what it is and why it is that we work, why it is that we want to have an abundance, why it is we want to be able to provide for the body of believers in Christ for those that have need. We have the illustration of it there. All right. Then verse 5, Proverbs 10, 5. Do I need to review that? You're looking at me like you're puzzled. You don't recall what we were dealing with? All right, short side trip then. In case you uh, forgot, 1 Timothy chapter 6, this is the uh, reason why those who are rich in this world, what it is that they are instructed to do. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Don't lose the source of why you have what you have. It's grace. It comes from God. If He's provided it, enjoy it. Enjoy what He's provided and don't covet what He's not provided. Alright? But at the same time, understand why He's provided it. Why has he entrusted you with a capacity that other people have not been entrusted with? To whom much is given shall much be required. He's entrusted you with a capacity. He expects you to be diligent in that capacity. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. He didn't give it to you to be a Scrooge, to hoard it, to withhold it from those in need, to turn your back on your brother that is struggling. And as you are generous and ready to share, you are storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. 
This is how you're laying up the treasures in heaven. So that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. You know, the hoarder, the the, the miser, the, 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 if you're that greedy and you're withholding, you're withholding, you think that if you share, then you have less. That's not true. In God's economy, as you share, you have more. You have an eternal increase. You are laying up that treasure in heaven. It is a win-win when you are making others rich. All right, and we have just the short reminder there. All right, back to Proverbs 10. <laughs> the linear time dimension does not stop. You might have noticed that. When I'm looking at verse 5, I'm looking at the seasons, and I realize, you know what? We stress the summer and the harvest here in, the, in this verse. Um, he who gathers in summer is a son who acts wisely, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. You realize the calendar doesn't stop. The clock doesn't stop. The, the linear time dimension is always moving. The sluggard, uh, part of the, the, the judgment of God upon uh, the, the sluggard is the fact that, you know, you're, you're hungry and you're looking out there and your crops aren't coming in. And you, why, why aren't your crops coming in? Well, because, you know, you didn't plant the crops back in the, in the planting season. You know, you lazy bum, what were you doing back then? Understand, these things don't stop. It continues. It absolutely continues. Wisdom identifies the season. We ought to know. You know, Joseph illustrates that. We've got seven years of, of plenty and it's going to be followed by seven years of famine. You've got to know where you are and what's going on. You've got to have the, the discernment to not be a slug. As the linear time dimension does not stop. Look to the ant, O sluggard. Remember this from chapter 6? wasn't that long ago. When were we in chapter 6? I think it was last summer. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, at least visible to our eyes, right, uh, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. You know, I mean, you can live in denial all you want. You can deny gravity, but it, you're still going to fall off a cliff. <laughs> you can deny the seasons all you want, but here's what's happening. There's a planting season. There's a harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. <laughs> this was a song, a ditty they made up. And uh, the Lord's not pleased with it. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Isn't it interesting? It's the, uh, the vagrants and the, uh, the thieves that want to take from those that worked. Why is that? <laughs> These chapters aren't very politically correct. I understand. All right. But the vagabond and the armed man, who are the people trying to take from those that produce? Understand our season. Ecclesiastes 3, of course, there's a time for everything. There's a season. John 9, 4. I think it's interesting to see folks that, uh, that want to be maladjusted to reality and they want to live in denial of what God created and what God designed and they think they've got a, a, a better plan or a, a better opportunity to do certain things. And it just uh, boggles the mind that they could be such fools. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you know this passage. It shows up in a lot, of, a lot of contexts. I used it in a funeral service last week. There's an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant, a time to uproot what is planted. Well, there you have it. Okay, And if you're going to be a slug, and you're not going to plant at the planting time, well, there's consequences. You've got to be diligent and do the things when it's time to do them. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down, a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh. Sometimes it's the same time. <laughs> you can do both at the same time. You can weep because your dad's in heaven, but then you can laugh because, man, you know what he was looking forward to seeing when he got there. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Time to throw stones, a time to gather stones. There's a, there's a good 
theological basis for um, the uh, military preparedness. The best military is, is the one you don't have to use, but the one that you're ready to use if you have to. Time to embrace, a time to shun embracing. Oh, look at that. Okay, so you can hug at the appropriate time. A time to shun embracing. A time to search, a time to give up is lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. Time to tear apart, a time to sew together. I mean, every single one of these is a sermon all on its own. Time to be silent and a time to speak. Time to love and a time to hate. Time for war and a time for peace. And so these are the times. And if you apply wisdom, you understand what is the time. The sluggard ignores the time. The sluggard just lives in this oblivious dream world in totally um, at odds with reality. We don't want to be that. All right. Finally, John 9, 4. Gospel of John, chapter 9. Jesus emphasized this, and um, in a context here, he heals the man that's born blind. His disciples want to know, you know, was it his sin or his parents' sin? <coughs> he says, neither. It was neither this man's sin nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now here's what we're learning in Proverbs brought forward by the Lord in His ministry. And I think it's, I think it's uh, absolutely vital given the culture and given where we are, where our nation is, right here, right now. We must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no, no, when no one can work. If we're headed for some divine discipline up ahead, if our nation is headed for some, some divine discipline up ahead, we better know that. We better work while it's still light. We better work before the darkness comes. Different applications to be made there. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. All right? You know, um, I I don't like getting sensational. I don't want to be a a fear monger or whatever, but churches that teach as we do are are becoming more uh, in the the crosshairs, more in the target zones. In Canada... If I was to preach the homosexual chapters of the Scripture and teach as the Scripture says, I could be brought up on charges. And now there's works, uh, there's, there's something going on in Iowa right now that, that is, is having pastors wondering if maybe they are going to come into some trouble too. Churches that have to make their bathrooms uh, transgender and whatnot. And how much trouble can a church get into if they insist on male and female, he created them. Alright? So, not to, you know, I'm not writing books and getting sensational and whatever. I'm just watching. I'm watching current events and I'm being cautious and I'm preparing my sheep. Because if those dark days truly come, then then we're gonna we're gonna stand for scripture. We're gonna stand for truth. So just be aware of it. Work while the opportunity is there. <laughs> okay? Don't be a slug. Don't be the sluggard. Be diligent in these applications. All right. Now, verses 6 through 11. Here's a fun section. Back to Proverbs 10, verses 6 through 11. The exception to the rule. Um, We have what's called an inclusio. A six-verse... Oh, goodness. It's called an inclusio, not inclusion. My spell check did me a a non-favor there. It's called an inclusio. It's a Latin expression, inclusio. I-N-C-L-U-S-I-O. Six verses from verses 6 through 11, 12 lines, because there's two per verse. And in inclusio, as a, as a facet of literature or poetry, we, we, have, we start with a concept, we end with a concept. Um, I often call this the, the, the sandwich uh, structure. <laughs> it's like you've got a piece of bread on top, a piece of bread on bottom, and I can always remember a sandwich. Uh, I don't always remember a Latin term like inclusio. Um, but this is what we have. We have blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. When you look down to verse 11, the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. All right? And so there's your inclusio. There's your top bread and bottom bread. The mouth of the wicked conceals violence. 
And in between, from verse uh, 6 down to verse 11, in between we have a poetic structure. It follows an A-B-A-B pattern. So verse 7 followed by verse 8, that's your A and B. Verse 9 followed by verse 10, that's your second A and B. So 7 and 9 are parallel, 8 and 10 are parallel, and uh, 6 and 11 form the the boundaries of your of this poem, the boundaries of this of this uh, inclusio, okay, and it's a contrast, a present and future contrast, both in time and in eternity, right here, right now, as well as down the road. His six verse twelve line inclusio paints the present and the future contrast between the righteous and the wicked, and you'll notice this um, again. There's the tandem from. <clears throat> with respect to the mouth of the wicked concealing violence, that verse six and verse eleven. Notice how seven and uh, ten. I'm sorry, seven and nine are uh, a tandem. How eight and ten are a tandem. And you'll see that A B A B pattern in uh, in this. I don't know how far we'll get in fifteen minutes, but we'll uh, we'll get a good start. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. And we'll discuss that there's two contrasts there, not just righteousness and wickedness, but the head and the mouth. And and what does it mean if there's something sitting on your head? What does it mean if there's something in your mouth? (laughs) Okay. And uh, why is one good for hiding and one is not good for hiding? In fact, if you wanted to hide something from me seeing right here, right now, I, I recommend don't put it on your head. Because if, uh, if you put it on top of your head right here, right now, I'm going to see it. Yep, see, there it is. I can see that. But if you stick it in your mouth and you keep your mouth shut, I don't know what you got in there, okay? That's kind of personal. I'm not going to go poking around in your mouth to see what's in there, all right? So there's what's on full display versus what's hidden, okay? And why is it hidden? It's hidden because it's vicious. It's hidden because once it comes out, you didn't expect it, and it's going to tear you down. That's the, the, the dangerous sword that is the, the mouth of the wicked, and particularly when they're lying to you and they're setting you up for the, the damage that's going to come. The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. Verse 7 there. And uh, what, what is the reputation, both in time and in eternity? What is going to be spoken of you after you're gone? Say, I was in... San Antonio last Friday, and what a fun! I mean, the the uh, Fort Sam Houston and the the National Cemetery there, and the the military honor guard and the gun salute and all the the uh, pageantry I think that goes with that. The folding of the flag, the 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 soldier that goes to his knee and presents it, and the and the on behalf of a grateful nation. I mean, I tell you, I just you get tearful watching that kind of thing. And then you're walking around and you're looking at the at the, the tombstones and you're seeing the different tributes and the different statements. What is the memory? What is the what is the legacy? What what is the person known for the, as they're departing? And uh, in the contrast here, the righteous and the wicked on an eternal basis, as their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life or not, what are they known for? And when will they be forgotten? And exactly why is it that so many humans <laughs> seem to dedicate their lives to not being forgotten after they're gone? And it seems really, really important to them to have a name, to have a legacy, to leave something. Okay, Whether they're politicians or not or what have you, it just seems like it becomes a, a feature in a lot of people's thinking. That they want to be known for something when they're gone. We'll be dealing with a lot of principles there as we get into those details. Verse 8, the wise of heart will receive commands, but a babbling fool will be ruined. You'll spot the parallel to that in verse 10 with a babbling fool. Uh, The wise of heart will receive commands, but a babbling fool will be ruined. The neat thing about wisdom is you find out who's teachable. You find find out about who is humble enough to receive instruction. Who walks with the Lord day by day? Who doesn't mind being told that he's messing up and he needs to change his thinking? That's the humble. That's the man of wisdom. The babbling fool is ruined. He's not teachable, and even worse, he just keeps babbling and babbling and babbling like he knows everything. You know, you, you meet some folks and you think, man, this guy is sure impressed with what he thinks he knows. <laughs> really? Is he teachable? See. 
Verse 9, he who walks in integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will be found out. And again, that's the parallel to verse 7. There's security, there's exposure. There's the memory of the righteous, there's the name of the wicked. And so we got verse 7, that's the AA combination, verse 7 and verse 9. And then the BB combination of the, of the poetry here is verses 8 and verse 10. He who winks the eye causes trouble. And a babbling fool will be ruined. Remember what that eye winking's about? We saw that already in an earlier chapter. Remember the eye winking? Say, what's so wrong about eye winking? Okay, I wink. Does that make me a sinner? <laughs> well, wait a minute. The point of the eye winking, though, is that you are uh, in in collusion with your fellow bandit. You are uh, in cahoots with another evildoer. You're saying one thing while you signal to your buddy, right, with a wink, the tap of the foot, the wink of the eye. The, the, the waving of the fingers, all right? You have your, your communication device involved that allows you to coordinate the deception with your fellow, uh, your fellow villain. And so the winking is all about deceiving some schlub, some victim, and, and you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna take what you're going to take. See? Goes well with the... Uh, the mouth of the wicked there that conceals violence. We want to understand all these things. All right, we got subpoints, and like I say, we won't do the bulk of this until next week. But let's just start with the, the, the blessings on the head that are in full display. Blessings on the head are in full view for open display, whereas the wicked mouth is a place of concealment. Those are the two contrasts righteousness versus wickedness, but then on the head versus in the mouth. Okay? Verse 6 is. Uh, is laying this out there for us. Blessings on the head are in full view for open display. Nothing to hide. Nothing at all to hide. And the blessings that, that, uh, that God uh, lays upon you, thank Him for it. Every blessing that He lays on your head, thank Him for it. And let it sit there. Let it sit there on full display because you're not showing off yourself. You're, you're boasting in the Lord. You're showing off in the Lord. If He puts a crown on your head, wear the crown. And testify to the grace of God that made that ground happen. That crown happen. <clears throat> nothing to uh, nothing to hide from. A lot of the times, the the head. By the way, what's the head speak to? Why is it we lay hands on the head in ordination services? Why why do we lay a hand on the head of the sheep before we slit its throat, and uh, and, uh, and 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 sacrifice it? Identification, that's right. Identification and public acknowledgement. Public acknowledgement. When, when Jacob blessed his sons, he put his hands on their head. In fact, he crossed the hands on his head. And that caused Joseph some, uh, some trouble. <laughs> he said, uh, Dad, you're, you're mixing it up there. He says, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> right? The older will serve the younger. And the, uh, but the, the laying the hand on the head is the public identification. I'm, I'm blessing this young man. I'm blessing this son. Or a king that dubs his knight, Sir Arthur dubs Sir Galahad, right? You, you dub him with a sword on the head. What's the, the imagery of the head? It's powerful. Before Lancelot, of course, betrays Arthur and commits adultery. with. <laughs> anyway, the head speaks to identification, speaks to, uh, so when you lay your hand on the animal, you are identifying, saying, I'm the sinner, but this animal is taking my place. And you kill the animal, and it takes the penalty instead of you. It's identification. You ordain a man as a pastor, it's identification. Fellow elders are saying, this man is an elder, this man is a pastor. And the ordination is the identification. So, uh, what are some of these other passages showing us? 11.26 He who withholds grain, the people will curse him, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. Why do you want blessings on your head? (laughs) Okay. Full display, full view, blessings on the head of him who sells it. Do you think of the head as a place of blessing? Proverbs 12, 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. What's a crown? A crown is a blessing on the head. Okay? An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. Crown on your head. Okay? 
something uh, you're, you're, you want to, it's on full display. You're, you're pleased to brag about it, pleased to boast about it. I'll tell anybody on earth who my wife is because she's my better half. She's my better three-fourths, my better nine-tenths, <laughs> my better 99 out of 100, okay? And uh, just like Psalm 31. Did I put that on there? Proverbs 31? The, um, her husband is known in the gates. The heart of her husband trusts in her. You know, the, 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 the blessings of, of God's blessing to you in that marriage uh, should be the crown on your head, as we see there in Proverbs 12, 4. Proverbs 16, 31. More connections of blessings with your head. Proverbs 16, 31. A gray head is a crown of glory. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It is, <laughs> it is found in the way of righteousness. There it is. All right. I don't get a lot of amens. I should have uh, preached that earlier. But no, think about it. And, and again, the world has opposite views. The elderly are not to be respected. They're not to be appreciated. In fact, uh, you know, once you're no longer a productive member of our great socialist utopia, well, then we just need to get rid of you. Because uh, if you're not contributing to the collective, then you're just dead weight. And uh, our system requires you to go so that uh, our, our great utopia can be sustained. No, Scripture says that's a glory. Honor them, esteem them, love them, serve them, learn from them. We can appreciate that as well. Chapter 17 and verse 6, Grandchildren are the crown of old men, and the glory of sons is their fathers. Again, on full view for open display. Be thankful for the gray hair. Be thankful for the, the years and, and so forth. Things that are, um, that are in full view for open display. Blessings from God ought to be on full view on open display, shared with everybody, testified to, because you didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it. It's the grace of God that, uh, that provided that. In Genesis 48, you've got a section there in Genesis 49. This is, I was mentioning a minute ago, this is the blessings of Jacob upon his sons. And it's placing his hands upon their heads. We'll have to close with this as we're running out of time. But Genesis 48, verses 17 through 20. When Joseph saw that his father uh, laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him, and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. See, he crossed the hands, and there, that was for a reason. And I think Jacob... Um, Jacob learned this lesson the hard way. Jacob was, in his younger years, he was the younger son, and he lied and cheated and stole, and he, he just, he, he was horrendous in uh, relationship with Esau there. And Joseph uh, said to his father, not so, my father, this one is the firstborn, place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also become a people, and he also be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And this is the exaltation of, of uh, Ephraim over Manasseh. And if you think about it, through the rest of the Old Testament, which tribe produced the greater heroes? Which tribe produced the, the, the greater leaders in the, in the ministry there? Can you name a single glorious champion hero from Manasseh? I'm scratching my head, all right. But we got the faithful spy Joshua. You got a lot of Ephraimites that uh, that stood before the Lord, and and uh, some of the judges. And Ephraim became the dominant tribe in the north, related to that. Anyway, we'll pick up on this. Um, forty nine twenty six. As long as I'm here, we'll close forty nine twenty six. You'll notice the blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors, up to the utmost bounds of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. There's the head, there's the crown in connection with blessings. And as God provides the blessings, the head represents full public view. Everyone can see it. It ought to be on display. We'll come back next week and we'll talk about the concealment of the mouth and how the liars will say one thing but mean another and uh, will stab you in the back first chance they get because of the concealment of their mouth. 
Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the truth of Proverbs. I thank you for the the uh, the plain language of Proverbs, Father. The uh, the black and white issues, the either or language of this poetry, Father. I, I thank you that your word keeps things as simple as as it does. I ask, Father, that we might be uh, humble before your truth to accept it, even uh, living in the midst of a world and a generation that um, denies everything from your truth. Father, help us to stand uh, courageously and, and strongly in uh, face of the opposition that is uh, not only coming, but is already already before us. Father, um, equip us to be your faithful testimonies, your faithful witnesses. And I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.